Morning, church family. The sermon titled this Lord's Day is titled The King of Glory. The King of Glory. Moses prayed, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And this is out of desperation because as he led the Israelites, there were a lot of challenges. Just in the chapter before, the Israelites were rebellious, stiff-necked, hard-hearted, and they were worshiping a golden calf. And right here, Moses is praying to the Lord, show me your glory. In other words, show me that you're still with us. Show me that I could keep going because I'm not sure I could keep leading these people. I need to know that you're with me. And Yahweh, God of the Old Testament, God of the universe, responds and graciously shows him his afterglow to show him that God is still with Moses, God is still with the Israelites. And perhaps this is where you're at right now. As you come this Lord's Day, you're sitting here, happy to be here with the brotherhood and the sisterhood, worshiping Christ together, and perhaps this is how you feel right now, though. Last week we heard preached from... uh, Mark 8, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Perhaps that shocked you, like, wow, this is what it means to be a Christian? And in your heart of hearts, I want to do this, but I'm not quite sure if I could do this. Perhaps your challenges with, at home or at work, difficulties with children, children aren't walking with the Lord, perhaps these are the burdens that you come with. Yet you're called to be a faithful mother, faithful father, faithful spouse. Perhaps right now sin and temptation is attacking you. And you are tempted and sin is starting to look better and better to you right now. That could be you right now. Maybe you're thinking about ministry. Perhaps as we have been praying and calling for elders, perhaps that's pricking your heart right now like, I want to, but I'm not quite sure how to do this and how much this will cost me. Well, just like Moses, your prayer should be, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And I believe this is what the Lord does in this next portion of Scripture at Mark chapter 9. Jesus Christ shows his glory to the disciples, three of them, three special opportunities to see Christ in his glory. And think about it. We're called to walk by faith, not by sight. But every once in a while, right, every once in a while, the Lord allows us to see his glory. The Lord allows us to see, to encourage us. And today he's going to show us a preview. Jesus Christ shows us a preview of heaven. And this, after all, this is where we want to be looking at constantly, heaven. So I feel completely inadequate, quite frankly, church family, I think it's a great privilege for me to study this portion and to let it uh, edify my heart all week long, but I feel really inadequate, quite frankly, to show God's glory. We're going to have to ask God to come with power through the preaching of his word because I'm inadequate to do this. My prayer has been that at the end of this service, every single person here will be able to see God's glory more clearly in a more powerful way. In other words, you'll see Christ as the king of glory by the end of the sermon and at the end of the service. And he, this is what he's going to do. So we're going to be at a Mark chapter 9. If you have your Bibles there, let's turn to Mark 9, 1 through 13. 
And like I said earlier, last week's sermon at Mark 8, Jesus says, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And then he finishes off with, if you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you when I return with the, in the glory of the Father. I mean, these are weighty words here. And so if you have your Bibles, your devices, let's turn to Mark 9, 1 to 13. Matter of fact, I'm going to go back one verse, Mark 8, 38, and, uh, to add a little bit more context. Mark 8, 38. Let's rise as we read the scriptures together, God's holy word. The greatest revelation, the only true revelation of God's glory. Mark 8, 38, and on to uh, chapter 9. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Chapter 9. And Jesus was saying to them, truly, truly, or truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God having come in power. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain alone by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments were shining intensely white as no launderer on, on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were conversing with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three booths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And all at once, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to recount to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, arguing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And they began asking him, saying, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restores all things. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and, will, and be treated with contempt? Verse 13, but I say to you that Elijah has indeed come and they did to him whatever they wish, just as it is written of him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this scene that shows the glory of your Son. Help us, Lord, to see your glory Father, I pray your spirit would open our hearts to understand and see your glory, the glory that you have in heaven, Lord Jesus, and allow me to preach your word with power, by the power of your Holy Spirit. So thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Please have a seat. Chapter nine, verse one is a much debated portion of scripture. What is Jesus Christ talking about when he says, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death, who will not die, in other words, until they see the kingdom of God having come in power. Well, I believe that this portion is best uh, interpreted by seeing where it, it lies in context of the rest of the scriptures around it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have this portion. And after every single uh, account of this in each gospel, it, it, the transfiguration shows up. 
So in context, I believe when Jesus Christ says some of you, he's talking about Peter, James, and John, will not see death or taste death until you see a preview of heaven. The transfiguration is a preview into heaven and a preview of the king of glory. This is why in Mark 8, 38, says he talks about the glory when Jesus Christ comes back in the glory of the Father. The Lord is giving some of the disciples a preview of heaven. And this is a cosmic uh, scene out of the scriptures. In some ways, we could understand when Jesus feeds the 5,000 or the 4,000, what that's like. There's, there's 15,000 people, there's 14,000 people, and Jesus miraculously feeds them all. We understand food, we understand the hunger, we understand that shows God's glory in a way that manifests through multiplying food. That's a miracle. It's an incredible miracle. But this miracle is a cosmic miracle where heaven invades earth and heaven and earth intersect with one another. This is where the residents of heaven open the doors of heaven and show up on top of the mountaintop here along with Jesus and the three disciples. And this is where the king of glory is unveiled even more. So chapter two, it says that they went up to a high mountain, mountain with Peter, James, and John. These are the inner three. Jesus had 12, but he had three inner circle friends that he personally discipled at a much more intimate level. And this high mountain, where's this high mountain? This is a debated uh, 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 fact as well, or, to or topic. I believe, as best I could tell, it's Mount Hermon. Why do I think that? Mount Hermon is 9,000 feet above elevation. Mount Hermon is close to Caesarea Philippi, where a lot of this was taking place in northern Israel. That's what I think. But really, it doesn't matter. It's a high mountain, and oftentimes in the Bible, this is where God meets his people on top of the mountaintop. And the three must have been wondering, Peter, James, and John, why is he taking us up this mountain? I mean, 9,000 feet is 9,000 feet. No trucks, no cars. I mean, they're walking up and traversing this mountain. They must have had plenty of time to think within themselves, why is the Lord taking us up this mountain? What is he going to show us? Is he going to give us a special role over the other nine guys? Are we going to get to serve him in a special way? What is he going to show us, right? These sort of things would be very natural if you, if you or I were one of the three people walking up with the Lord. Well, today the Lord is going to show these three that he is the king of glory. And, and the three facets that he's going to show them is that the king of glory is, he is, is the radiance of God. The king of glory is the word of God. And the king of glory is the beloved son of God. The radiance, word, and beloved son of God. All right, let's get to the first point. The king of glory is the radiance of God. Hebrews 1, 3, Sister Irene read this out of her Bible. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of God's nature. Radiance, what are we talking about here? The radiance is the brightness of God's glory, the shininess of God's glory. John MacArthur writes on this topic, and he writes, the only radiance that reaches us, the only radiance that reaches us from God is mediated or comes through to us from Jesus Christ. Just as the rays of the sun light and warm the earth, 
We can understand that the sun sends light and warmth to the earth. So Jesus Christ is the glorious light of God shining in the hearts of men. Just as the sun was never without and cannot be separated from its brightness, so God was never without and cannot be separated from the glory of Christ. Jesus Christ is the shininess of God's glory. Jesus Christ is the way God the Father has decided to reveal himself in the ultimate way. If you know Jesus and you see Jesus, you've seen the Father. Jesus Christ is the clearest expression of who God the Father is, in other words. And right now, we are are about to see the most clearest manifestation of God's glory on earth, right here at verse 2. And where Jesus shows his divine glory in verse 2, it says this, and he was transfigured before them. In the original language, this is where we get the English word for metamorphosis, where caterpillars change from being a caterpillar to a butterfly. It it, it takes a different form, in other words, where Jesus Christ all of a sudden takes a different form with the three people, the three disciples were used to seeing. Let me me explain. When you think of Jesus walking the earth 2,000 years ago, what comes to mind? Is he larger than life? Would he be like a glamorous celebrity? Would he be like a tip-top athlete that just sticks out amongst the crowd? Would he be sitting in the palace? Absolutely not. Isaiah 53, 2 says that Jesus had no stately form or majesty, that Jesus didn't have any appearance that we should look upon him, that we should desire him. He would just be normal, completely normal. He was a blue-collar Jewish man, and he would not stick out from anyone else from the crowd. So he was fully God, truly God since the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, and fully man. But his godness, his divineness was veiled as if he was wearing a suit in some ways where he's truly God and he expressed it through his teaching and through his compassion, how he lived the perfect life and all through his miracles. But apart from that, this is a regular Jewish man, a regular Middle Eastern man. And so this is where he starts to take off that human suit, to, metaphorically speaking, and begins to show who he is. In verse 3, it says this, And his garments were shining intensely white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. What's happening here? Jesus Christ is showing who he is on the inside, on the outside now. He's allowing the three to see this vision of our Lord, and Luke 9 says his clothing were flashing like lightning. Not only, that, not only was he stunningly bright and white, he, he was flashing, Luke 9 says. Matthew 17, these are parallel passages to uh, this uh, account of the transfiguration. Matthew 17 says that Jesus' face was shining like the sun. There was something clearly different here as they looked at the Lord. I mean, he basically pulls back his flesh, unveils more of his divine nature, and shows him his glory, the king of glory. Second Peter 1, 16, Peter rolls up, he writes about this later on in his letter, says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his grandeur and his awesomeness. 
Ken Hughes describes what this might have been like by saying, for a brief moment, the veil of his humanity was lifted and his true essence was allowed to shine through. He slipped back into eternity to his pre-human glory, meaning how God has always existed before he took on human flesh. It was glanced back and he looked forward into his future glory. See, I think that's the key word right here. It was a look forward into his future glory. What was the Lord doing here? Why was he allowing these three to see this? Well, keep in mind, the disciples were challenged earlier in chapter 8. By the way, Peter, you have to deny yourself. You have to be willing to die for me, and you have to follow me. Do you remember that? And these are some challenging things. You might have been challenged last week hearing this. Well, the Lord, I believe, is encouraging Peter to say, look, Peter, it's worth it. And I'm going to show you here why it's worth it. And, and John gets a later revelation as he's on the island of Patmos. And let me read you Revelation 1, where what Jesus looks like in heaven. All right? And so this has a lot of similarities to what's described here. This is a preview of heaven's king, John would see. And John writes, And his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, bright. His feet were like burnished bronze when it, was it has been made to glow in a furnace. His feet were glowing like hot metal. And then John would go on to write, His face was like the sun shining its power. Okay, so what the disciples, the three disciples are saying on the mountaintop is a vision into heaven. This is a preview unto what the king of glory, Jesus Christ, will look like forever and ever. I mean, as you think about this, isn't that encouraging? As I think about this for our church, in my own life, whatever challenges that you're going through, undoubtedly, as I look out, I know there's incredible challenges going to uh, you're facing right now. I know this. I know some specific ones, but in general, all of us are going through some kind of challenge, whether it's transitioning from the high school to the college, graduating from college to, to work life, whatever it may be, challenges of trying to uh, become, uh, have children, whatever those things may be, or challenges with grown children, whatever those challenges may be, isn't it important for us to be able to see Christ in this way? I mean, when you think of Jesus Christ, what comes to mind? What comes to mind? What words, what images, what pictures come to mind? And oftentimes, as we see out of the Gospels, we see him as a man. Praise God. He's fully God, fully man. Amen. And oftentimes, which is good, I think we see Jesus portrayed as a loving, gracious man who once in a while will rise up against the Pharisees and call them a, a whitewashed tombs and other things like that to challenge them. But for the most part, we see Jesus as a friend. He's a friend of sinners. We're all sinners. And that's a good view of the Lord. That's absolutely true of the Lord. Jesus is merciful and compassionate, gracious. We see the perfect example of humanity. Amen. I mean, you want him to be your friend. You want him to be your dad. You want him to be your brother. This is our best friend. But I think it adds a whole different 
divine element when we start thinking of more than just a friend. Jesus Christ is the king of glory where he is shining in heaven right now, praying for you and me as his personal friends. So let's, let's, let's apply it to our lives right now. Whatever challenges, whatever obstacles that you're going through, do you see that your friend is the king of glory? Do you see this? Is this what you picture? Like when I think of Jesus, I see him sitting on the throne, glowing in sovereign control of everything. And this is important that we understand this. The bigger that we see Christ, the smaller our problems will seem like. Because if you have a friend who's the most loyal, perfect friend, but he or she has no power to do anything, that's perhaps comforting in some ways, but you're still stuck in your troubles. But if you see Jesus Christ as that perfect friend who actually holds the cards to everything, he's in control over everything and everyone, he's the one that's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of God's perfect nature. It changes everything. It changes everything. And I believe as believers, we need to meditate on this. As I sat this week thinking and praying about the Lord's glory and the, the King of glory, it just took away a lot of my burdens, if not all of them. I mean, the problems are still there. The challenges are still there. Yet, the King of glory is with us. Moses, this is the reason why Moses said, show me your glory. I need to know that although this nation is stiff-necked, rebellious, and, and, and hard-hearted, I need to know you're there with us because if you're there with us, it's going to be fine. That is the whole picture of what's happening here. I mean, think about what we just sung earlier before the throne of God above. The songs that we choose are carefully selected not only to align with the sermon and the preaching, but just think about what we're singing here before the throne of God above. Behold him there, the risen lamb. He's our sacrifice, my perfect spotless righteousness. But look what, and look what the next portion says, the great unchangeable I am. The one who sacrificed himself is the eternal God. The king of glory and of grace, awesome glory. There's no one more glorious, there's no one more powerful than Jesus Christ, our friend and our savior. The one, one in himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. See, these songs are designed for us to allow the word of Christ to, to dwell in us richly. As we sing these songs, know that there's deep truths that we're singing. Now does it, like I said, uh, 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 back up and, and add color to the sermon and prepare hearts to hear the word of God preach. The singing of the songs are meant for us to be able to preach to one another in song, but also have these songs preached to us in these dark moments. With Christ my Savior and my God. Isn't that amazing? And so as the three are looking at this, the issues of picking up the cross and dying, I mean, these things are big, leaving their fishing business, leaving family and friends. These things are big, but put in perspective. Jesus Christ, in other words, gives them heavenly perspective through, these, through this preview. Let's go to the second point here. 
The king of glory is the word of God. The king of glory is the word of God. The portals of heaven are opened up and now two heavenly messengers are sent to the mountaintop, Elijah and Moses. And it says this, that in Luke 9, that Elijah and Moses appeared in glory. What does that mean? You know what that means? When Moses saw God's glory, the, the, the Lord Yahweh said, you cannot see me face to face because you'll be incinerated. You will die. But I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you as I walk by. But I'll let you see the, my hind parts. I'll let you see my afterglow. And this is what the Lord allowed him to see as he covered up uh, Moses lovingly. He walked by in the cleft of the rock and he saw and experienced the afterglow of Yahweh. And then when Moses came back down from the mountain to talk to the people, they were terrified of him. You know why? Because Moses' face was glowing like the sun. Some of that Shekinah, some of that glory of God has stayed upon Moses in a temporary way. And so when it says that uh, Elijah and Moses appeared in glory out of Luke 9, they're like mirrors that reflect God's glory. They just left the presence of the Holy, Holy, Holy One and was sent down to heaven, and there's some of the afterglow was still upon these two. I mean, that's why when we see the angels in the Gospels, they're always white and bright because angels are serving in the presence of the Holy God. And whenever we're, the closer that we are to God, more of his glory shines through us like mirrors. And then Moses and Elijah were specifically there, I believe, because Moses, as many of us know, represents the law. He wrote the first five books of the Testament. He's the one who interacted with God face to face as, and brought down the Ten Commandments. Elijah is known as the greatest of the prophets. He never died. He actually was taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot. And so oftentimes when you think of the law and the prophets, that is a summation or, or, or description of the entire Old Testament. So in other words, Moses and Elijah are there to represent all of God's word that points to Jesus Christ. In other words, the entire Old Testament pointed to Jesus Christ. And it's very emblematic of what Matthew eleven thirteen says, all the prophets in the law prophesied about me. It's very emblematic of what Jesus says in John five thirty nine. The scriptures witness to me, witness about me. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, as was read by Irene, God having spoken long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in his son. The king of glory is the word of God. The king of glory is the heavenly message of God. If you want to hear from God, focus on Jesus Christ, the king of glory. I mean, I was, just to apply this to our lives, how, what do we do with this? Okay, I get it. The Bible is about Jesus. But let me be clear so we understand. Let me help us understand this even more. And, and we, we can't miss Jesus from the Bible we emphasize the scriptures unashamedly here at Evergreen Baptist Church. If you're a guest here, we center around God's word. We preach God's word. We read God's word. We pray God's word as Pastor Victor did. We sing God's word as led by the music team. Don't miss Jesus Christ from the Bible. Certainly the Bible has divine mysteries and wisdoms. 
certainly talks about divine uh, history of, of how the world was created, how creation began. Certainly we can learn about angels and demons and heaven and hell, man and sin. All those things are there. But we cannot miss Jesus Christ because if we miss Christ, we miss everything. We, if we miss Christ, as Moses prays, show me your glory, we miss God's glory because Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory. Let me, I've said this before, I, I, I want to do this better this time, okay? I'm going to go nice and slow so you can understand how this even makes sense, all right? And, and I'm going to give you big, broad brushstrokes or summaries of zif, different portions of the Bible. Okay, let's start with the Old Testament. Let's start with the Old Testament. The law, the first five books of the Bible. How would I sum up what, how the law points to Jesus? Is our need for Christ. Our need for Christ. And then the history of Israel. There's a Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, other portions talk about the history of Israel. You know how we sum up that portion? The story of Christ, how God brings Jesus Christ, his own son, through the Jewish people to bless all of humanity. Okay, let's go to the next portion. How about the Psalms? The Psalms, the book of Psalms. I'll sum that up as the heart of Christ. So these are songs that Christ loves to sing, the, the heart of Christ. What is on Jesus Christ's heart? The Proverbs, the wisdom of Christ, or the mind of Christ. This is how Christ thinks. This is how Christ thinks. We were talking about wisdom in our eighth class today, and really all those descriptions of heavenly wisdom is really describing the mind of Christ. So if you want to be wise, you want to be like Christ, in other words. The prophets, which close up the uh, Old Testament, I would say how to best sum that up is the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ. Now let's get to the New Testament. Or clearly the New Testament's all about Christ. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the person of Christ. The person of Christ. You want to know who Jesus Christ is in the flesh? There it is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The book of Acts, the preaching of Christ, the spirit-filled preaching of Jesus Christ, how the church was born, how sinners came to repentance through the preaching of Christ. The epistles, this is the letters. All right, these are the letters after Acts, all the way to Revelation, the explanation of Christ. They, these letters explain who Jesus Christ is. And then finally, Revelation, simply put, the return of Christ. So if you could understand what 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 the scriptures are saying, it ultimately points to Jesus Christ. And as you study the scriptures, think through this, what am I learning about Jesus Christ? That was a perfect example. Like in James, as you're studying what wisdom is, you're really understanding an explanation how Jesus Christ thinks, how he would interact in different situations. This is more than let's just be wise now. We're trying to learn more about Christ. Well, and then verse four, going back to the text here, verse four says that Moses and Elijah were conversing with Jesus. Why, oh, why aren't there more details? What are they talking about, right? I mean, our pastor's meeting, one of the pastors asked, I wonder what they're talking about. I wonder what they're talking about. Well, there's an answer here out of Luke 9. It says that Elijah and Moses were talking to Jesus about Jesus' departure in Jerusalem. There is an answer that's, that's given through the Bible here, through Mark 9. In other words, they're talking about Jesus, not necessarily informing him, but they're talking about 
how heavens, or about heaven's plan to bring the kingdom to earth. And what are they talking about? They're talking about the Lord's death on the cross. They're talking about Jesus Christ departing by dying on the crossed cross. And then how did Peter respond? Verse five, and Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Yes, let us make three booths or tabernacle or tents. Okay, booths, tabernacles, tents, your Bible may say. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. How did Peter miss it? What is he talking about here? You may be thinking, what is Peter trying to say here? Well, what I think Peter is saying here is this. I think Peter is saying, let's set up camp here. Let us set up home base. You are the king. Let's do it right now. Let, let, it's time for the coronation. Let's set up the tent here. And, and it's very emblematic of the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was a Jewish holiday that commemorated the exodus out of Egypt, how the Egyptians or the Israelites were liberated from the Egyptians. And in, in Zechariah, in the end times, this is that the Feast of Booths will commemorate the kingdom of God on earth. So Peter was jumping the gun. Peter was saying, all right, let's start up, set up home base right now. Let's do this. Let's let this be the capital of our kingdom. He didn't get it. He wasn't thinking about dying. He was thinking about ruling with Jesus at this point, right? And we get it. He didn't get it. And verse six is that, for he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. He was just speaking as best he could. Typical Peter. But right there you see that even the prophets and Moses were saying, Elijah and Moses were saying, it's getting close to dying, isn't it, Lord? It's getting close to dying. It's time to bring the kingdom to earth through dying. And the, the Peter and disciples didn't quite get it. Let's go to the final point here. And how does, the, how does God of heaven respond to Peter's suggestion? The king of glory, third and final point, is the beloved son of God. The king of glory is the beloved son of God. So you see the radiance of God. You see that Jesus is the word or the message of God. Now we're seeing that the king of glory, Jesus Christ, is the beloved son of God. Heaven's gates are open even wider now. Now God the Father descends from heaven onto the mountaintop in a cloud. Verse 7 says this, then a cloud formed overshadowing them. This is significant, the cloud. As it, there's a lot of Old Testament, New Testament uh, hyperlinks, so to speak, uh, cross-references. But really, the, the cloud, how I see that, is heaven's vehicle. Heaven's vehicle, at times, God himself transports himself from heaven to earth. Although God is everywhere, God manifests himself in a unique way through a cloud. In the Old Testament, Yahweh, this is God uh, 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 of the Old Testament, of the New Testament. This is the one and only God that we sing about. It's the cloud that led Israel in the wilderness. Did it not? Do you remember that? It's the cloud that settled on Mount Sinai as Moses met with Yahweh. It's the cloud that filled the tabernacle or the, or the tent of meetings with God's glory. So in the Old Testament, when there's a cloud, oftentimes it is a manifestation of God's presence on earth. But there's a similar connection from Jesus to the cloud as well. To point that Jesus is Yahweh himself. Jesus is the same God that met with Moses on Mount Sinai. Jesus is the same God that filled the tabernacle with his glory. In Acts 1, how does Jesus go back to heaven? 
a cloud took him back to heaven. In 1 Thessalonians, when Christ comes back to rapture the church, how does he come back down? In the clouds. In Revelation 1-7, when he returns for the saints, for the, how does he come back? In the clouds. So this is quite significant. I believe this is a, for us to understand this, there's a lot of connections here that, G, that, that says that Jesus is God himself through, this, through the cloud here. But more clearly, comes in the next portion out of verse 7. What happens out of the cloud? And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. If you need any more evidence that Jesus Christ is the chosen one of God, if you need any more evidence that Jesus Christ is the son of God, you don't have to go any further than this. This is the second time in the book of Mark that the father affirms that Jesus is his son. At the baptism, right, Mark 1.11, just says, you are my son. In that portion, the father addresses Jesus, you are my beloved son. In this portion, the father speaks, but not necessarily addressing Jesus. He says, this is my beloved son. In other words, to Peter, James, and John, this is my son. He's worth it. And now that he's my beloved son. And when you think of that God, Jesus Christ is the son of God, in other words, what do you think about? Do you think this is like as the cults believe that Jesus is some created being? No. Jesus is the uncreated one. In John 5, 18, Jesus makes himself or calls the Father or God his Father, which makes himself equal with God. In other words, that you are my beloved sons and you are God. In Hebrews 1, that was read earlier, my God said to my God. All right, this is God himself. And the Father is saying that Jesus is God. And it says, but now that my beloved, what does this mean? That means that the Father and Son has had this love relationship from eternity past. This love relationship represents a perfect fellowship, a perfect unity, a perfect delight in one another. This is a perfect relationship. And as I thought about this, as Father's, Father's Day approaches next Sunday, next Lord's Day, we all have fathers, don't we? I mean, not one of us got here without a father. But, but it's another thing to be beloved by a father. It's one thing to have a father, but it's another thing to be beloved by a father. I mean, so what does this mean for us? This is my beloved son. Praise God, it verifies Jesus as the God-man, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Chosen One. But not only that, it has a lot of implications for us as well. In John 17, Jesus prays to the Father and says this out of John 17, 23. He prays that the Father will give us, love us in the same way that he's loved the Son. Do you hear what I just said? Not only is the Father saying, this is my beloved Son, but because of Christ, we get to be loved by the Father with the same quality of love that the Son has from the, God the Father. And this is what unites us. I mean, this is just a mind-blowing thing. As Peter, James, and John are there, we get to be there too. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ, 
God the Father loves you with the same type of love that he has for his own son. And I, I just, I, that's hard to imagine. That's hard to imagine. I mean, in other words now, God the Father loves you, Christian, more than the person who's not a Christian. He loves the world in a general sense, but he loves you, Christian, as he loves Jesus Christ. In other words, he loves you, Christian, more and, and greater than how he loves the holy angels. If you are beloved in Christ, he loves you more than the animals, the planets, more than any other created being. We get to, if you can imagine this, we get to be in this love relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit forever. And this is a mind-blowing thing. And, and I understand we don't, all of us have broken relationships and hurts and wounds, but this is a type of love that affirms us to the very end, forever and ever. And then the, Lord, and the Father says, listen to him. Listen to him. And what happens after that? Silence. Lights are off. Jesus Christ puts his skin back on. Isaiah 53, verse 2, skin back on. He's back to being, looking like a normal Jewish man. Still God, but veiled now. The heavenly messengers, Elijah and Moses, are sucked up back into heaven. The cloud goes back into heaven. Now it's just quiet. And who's left? Just the three of them and Jesus Christ again. Back to his normal self that they've known. And then it's time to go back down the hill. It's time to pack up. What? Peter said, let's just stay up here. Let's just set up tents. Let's stay up. No, no, no. It's time to go back down, Peter. It's time to get to business. And the only thing that they're left with in their ears is this. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to what? Listen to what? Well, let's look at verse 9. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to recount to anyone what they had seen. Don't say anything about this to anyone until, until what? What are they supposed to listen to? Until the Son of Man rose from the dead. The Father it was telling the disciples, it's not coronation time. It's time to die. It's time to march down the hill and head south and get on your death march and to see the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, die for the sins of the world. And they said, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. In verse 10, 11, it wasn't, what does this mean, rising from the dead? What, what, what is this all talking about? They're arguing with one another. Hold on, doesn't, 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 don't the scribes say that Elijah needs to come first before any of this happens? Jesus graciously answers him in verse 12 and 13. Elijah has come already. John the Baptist has come. And he's prepared the way for me. And King Herod did whatever he wanted to him. He mistreated him and killed him. Now it's time for me to die. John the Baptist died. Now it's time for me to die. As it is written, the king of glory must suffer first. This is the reason why I came to, came to earth, is bring the kingdom of God not through power, not through might, by going to the cross. Therefore, we can't stay up here. You see, if, if you're a guest, the central thrust of Christianity is this. 
that Jesus Christ, hear me now, let's not get used to hearing this, that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners like you and me. In order for the kingdom of God to come in its full power and glory, Jesus Christ needed to die on the cross for you and me. He sacrificed his life, his divine and perfect life, to pay the price for you and me to be brought into the family of God. If that never happened, every single one of us would have been at odds with God the Father. We would have been enemies with God the Father. Let's not get tired of hearing this. Let's not speak to ourselves during this time. Let's quiet our minds. What does it mean that Jesus Christ died for my sins? Do I actually believe this? If you're not a Christian, if you believe that Jesus Christ, God himself, died for your sins and rose again, you trust in what he has done for you. You do not have to face him as an enemy someday. And you've entrusted your life. You give your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You will be saved, the Bible says. I mean, this is the ultimate promise. How does the kingdom of glory come in power? Is by dying. For the word of the cross is the power of God, right? For the gospel is the power of God to save first the Jews and then to the Gentile. Give your life to Jesus today. And my concern is that you could be sitting here getting here, getting tired of hearing the same old message. And if you are, how do you know that you are in Christ? I addressed it last week just because I prayed a prayer. I rose my hand. Is that where your confidence lies? If there is no fruit of obedience that Jesus Christ is my Lord, that I deny myself, take up my cross and follow him, is there evidence of that in, in your life? And right now you may be wondering, is it worth it? Well, the Lord was showing Peter, James, and John that he's worth it. He is the king of glory. He was giving them the preview. Here's an encouragement for those of us who are in Christ to finish up here. Here's an encouragement the king of glory is coming back. He's coming back like he says he's going. And he's coming back in the glory of, uh, of the Father and with the holy angels. He's coming back. And next time he's coming back as the king of glory, not the lamb of God. He's coming back as the lion of Judah. And those of us who are beloved, we, we, we're going to be like, if we're alive at that moment, we will be celebrating. We will be like, yes, you could take that old job. I want to be with you. You, you could take those relationships. I get to be with you and the, and the brotherhood and sisterhood. I want to have you. But I'm concerned that some of us in here may be dreading that day. I still got more things I want to accomplish on this earth. I still want to experience this. I got to go on this trip still. I still got to see some certain social reforms take place on this earth. None of that's going to matter. None of that's going to matter. And if you are dreading that day, test yourself to see if you see the king of glory in Jesus Christ. Has God shown the glory of God in the face of Christ in your heart? Has that happened? Or I see God's glory when Moses says, show me your glory. 
Has that happened in your heart? That is a test of a, of a disciple that yes, he, I see the glory of God in the face of Christ and he's worth dying for. He's worth coming down the mountain and getting on my death march to follow him. This is glorious truth. And so same thing that Moses went through back then, leading the, the Israelites, he needed to see God's glory. We need to see God's glory more and more. And if you're in Christ, we may understand degrees of God's glory. But our hope is that we're able to see it more and more and more. And the key is this, looking into the scriptures. This is the reliable source of being able to see God's glory. Amen? This is what we're about. We're about the king of glory and I certainly hope that somehow we're able to see Jesus Christ as our friend who's also sitting on the throne of heaven above, ordering everything that takes place, and he's coming back for you and me, Christians. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this glorious account of your son. Thank you that, Jesus, you are the radiance of the glory of God. Thank you, Father, that you have spoken to us through Jesus Christ, your Son. Thank you, Father, that we get to be beloved, your beloved, through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you will show us your glory. And that, Father, I pray for the Christians in this room that we will have a greater, greater understanding of how glorious you are. And that you will show us that you are majestic, you're awesome, you are the one who sits on the throne of heaven above. And so, Father, I also pray for the lost here right now. I pray, Lord, that you show them your glory so that they see that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure of all. That Jesus Christ is worth more than anything this world has to offer. So, so, Father, I thank you for this opportunity to preach Mark 9. Lord, show us more of your glory, Lord. Help us understand what you're saying more and more every day through your written word. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.